Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. At the end of this year, West Virginia will become the only state still home to commercial Greyhound racetracks. It's a diminishing industry. Greyhound racing is, is, is a pretty uh, lucrative financial benefit to the state. That's important to me because I, if we're going to have it, it has to be able to generate revenue and have, we have to have it for a reason. And healthcare workers in eastern Kentucky are seeing a surge in black lung cases among younger coal miners. Somebody's going to have to take care of them for the next 20 or 30 years, and it's going to be a huge burden. We'll also have the story of a West Virginia man who helped fit prosthetic limbs to civilian survivors of war. He himself needed repair, and I think the way he thought he could repair himself was repairing other people. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. We tend to associate black lung disease with older coal miners and retirees, but more and more young miners, people in their 20s and 30s, are living with the disease too. We'll hear more about that later in the show. But first, by 2023, West Virginia will have the only two remaining Greyhound racetracks in the country. A state law commits West Virginia to support Greyhound racing at two casinos. Mardi Gras Casino and Resort, just west of Charleston, and Wheeling Island Hotel Casino Racetrack in the northern Panhandle. In a new series, reporters Randy Yoey and Chris Schultz take us inside West Virginia's dog racing world. Part one takes us to the track. Randy Yoey has more. at the Wheeling Island Casino and Track. Longtime Greyhound racing fan Michael Palmer is one of about 50 patrons watching today's races. Jordan, these people here are retiring every day. This is all we got to do is come here and watch the races and bet a little, bit, a little bit of money. Hopefully we win. Across the country, Greyhound Racing is on a rapid decline. By 2023, this track, along with one other in West Virginia, will be the last two remaining Greyhound Racing tracks in the United States. Some want the sport to continue here. But a future for Greyhound Racing in West Virginia is not guaranteed. And to understand why, you have to understand its relationship to casinos. The Mardi Gras Casino and Resort in Kanawha County hosts West Virginia's other Greyhound track. That's where you'll find Greg Conlip betting on the dogs. He's watching the races not trackside, but on a big screen monitor near the slot machines in the cashier's window. It's just like an athlete, you know, and so you, you find out what, who the best athletes are out there and the dogs, and that's the ones that you stay with all the time. So it, it's, it's interesting. Some, like Mardi Gras racing betters Matt and Judy Blowers, hope West Virginia becomes the focal point for Greyhound enthusiasts around the country. Judy says it's too bad that states like Florida, Iowa, and Arkansas have lost out on the sport. Well, I think it's a shame because, especially since COVID, people need a way to relax and have fun. And that's all that this is. We're not here to, you know, my mortgage is already paid. I'm not here to pay my mortgage off. Down on the track, eight more dogs have come from the kennel and are heading to the starting block for the fifth of the day's 15 races. Dogs have raced at Mardi Gras since 1985. Wheeling Island transitioned from horse to greyhound racing in 1976, and there's a reason why the sport persists here today. In 2007, state legislation established requirements that all state-sanctioned casino table games and video lottery machines can only operate where there is also horse or dog racing. Racing, either thoroughbred or greyhound, is integrally tied to their license to operate, and they have to continue live racing in order to keep the casinos going. That's Delegate Matt Rohrbach, a Republican from Cabell County. Senator Ryan Weld, a Republican from Brook County, supports the state's greyhound industry. The owner of an adopted greyhound says it's a humane sport that provides hundreds of jobs and makes the state a profit. Greyhound racing is, is, is a pretty uh, lucrative financial benefit to the state. That's important to me because I, if we're going to have it, it has to be able to generate revenue and have, we have to have it for a reason. 
but not everyone is in favor of racing in West Virginia, including the owner of the state's two tracks. Delaware North owns and operates casinos around the country, including both West Virginia facilities. In a statement, Delaware North spokesperson Glenn White said, Greyhound racing is losing money and public interest. White says the industry is seeing, quote, fewer patrons, an older customer base, and declining revenue overall. Over the past five years, he says the number of patrons at Wheeling Island has dropped by 60% and by 40% at Mardi Gras. Delaware North supports the national trend to uncouple state government and greyhound racing, but not everyone wants to see that uncoupling. (laughs) Greyhound breeder Steve Saras is president of the West Virginia Kennel Owners Association. Saras says live dog racing fuels casino table games and video lottery activity. He says the state should double up when the two West Virginia tracks become America's dog racing mecca. Say, for instance, we went as a group to the track. Some people might say, hey, I'm going to play blackjack. I'm going to go play poker. I'm going to go play dogs. I'm going to go play horses. So usually when they live race, casino play goes up. So And all of that stuff, it benefits the state. The state gets extra money. And then when Arkansas and Iowa closes, you know, it's only going to go up from there. Delaware North says its top priority in operating racing is doing so to the highest standards for the safety and well-being of the Greyhounds. Last year, state records for the two tracks show more than 600 Greyhounds were injured, nearly 200 suffered broken bones, and 10 dogs died. Dr. Mark Webster, Mardi Gras track veterinarian since 2002, says challenges in pandemic staffing contributed to the medical problems. They had to streamline the employees and everything just to make things go. Sometimes we weren't able to retain some of the more experienced people that, you know, that can solve some of those problems and, you know, injury is part of it. Dr. Webster also says these greyhounds are athletes, born and bred to run. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie. We'll be hearing more from West Virginia Public Broadcasting series on the future of dog racing. Part two gets deeper into the question of whether or not greyhound racing is humane. This summer, Shell plans to begin operations at its massive ethane cracker plant in Manaka, Pennsylvania. Since Shell first announced interest in the site in 2012, the prospect of new petrochemical investment in the Ohio River Valley has fueled hope and fear. For State Impact Pennsylvania, the Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier visited to find out what people think as the plant prepares to open. It's a well-known story in western Pennsylvania. For decades, steel mills lined the region's rivers, and though they belched out soot and pollution, they put food on the table. At a local restaurant, Skip Homan tells the story. Steel in in Beaver County was the major source of employment. Homan is on the board of the Beaver County Partnership for Community and Economic Development. He says when steel left in the 1980s, the county's tax base tanked, as did its population and school enrollments. When Shell said it had chosen Beaver County to build its ethane cracker, which will turn natural gas into 1.6 million metric tons of plastic pellets a year, he felt it was a big moment for the county. Oh, I I was thrilled. The plant received the largest subsidy ever in Pennsylvania, a $1.65 billion tax credit, and Homan says he didn't have a problem with that, if that's what it took the plant to get here. At its peak, construction of the plant employed 8,000 workers. Many were from out of state, and they crowded the county's hotels, restaurants, and rental apartments. Homan thinks it's all been good for the county. Before Shell, Beaver County was really not recognized, not known. Uh, Now Beaver County's on the map. When it opens, it will have 600 permanent jobs. But not everyone in Beaver County is so happy about the plant opening. Joyce Hanshaw lives across the Ohio River from the plant in the town of Vanport. All the way down to the road, this whole area is ours. And is that the plant right there? Yes, sir. She and her husband Don, a retired steel worker, used to have bonfires in their backyard, but stopped since the plant was constructed. The whole area here is all lit up all the time. So there's no really no nighttime here. 
Hanshaw and her husband bought their house in 1973. She doesn't want to move, mostly because the house is paid off. She says she's already heard strange sounds coming from the plant. You heard this like that and didn't even know what the devil was going on. I thought it was a train coming down the street. Like a lot of people, she's worried about what kind of health problems the plant might cause when it goes online. And I'm just wondering, for health reasons, it being plastic and that I already have lung problems as it is, what's it going to be like? Hanshaw is not alone. A couple miles away lives Dave Blair. He's a retired shop teacher from Bedford County. He built a new house so he and his wife could be close to their adult children. In the basement is a wood shop where he rebuilds woodworking machines. Like this, this is a 1953 drill press, but uh, this is a uh, hand drill, probably about 1910, 1920. Blair has asthma. He wears a dust mask whenever he's in the shop, but chemicals in the wood finishes he uses give him the biggest reactions, he says. He manages the condition with medication. I get two shots every 10 days, and then I uh, take an inhaler that, um, <clears throat> it, um, it cost me $90 a month for the inhaler. When he built the house in 2014, he had heard about the shell plant, but he wasn't aware of just how much air pollution it could create. The plant's state air permit allows it to emit more than 500 tons of volatile organic compounds, also known as VOCs, every year, more than any facility in western Pennsylvania. VOCs are chemicals that can form ground-level ozone, or smog, which can leave asthma patients wheezing, especially on hot, sunny days. I did not realize they would be legally permitted to do as much VOCs as they do. And um, it, the VOC part of it is what worries me. Blair has an air monitor outside his house, courtesy of a citizen monitoring project. He hopes that the air quality won't get worse, but he still owns a home in Bedford County, just in case. At this point, we've sort of staked our claim here, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> Derek Reynolds is happy that Shell decided to build in Beaver County. Reynolds grew up in the town of Aliquippa. One of his earliest jobs was disassembling a steel plant. He's worked construction and on pipelines ever since. We haven't had anything this big since the mills. So why complain about it when people were saying there's no jobs around here? Most of the, you know how many people has left this area because of no work or no good paying jobs, at least. When he heard the company was building the plant a few years ago, he took a course on construction at the community college, paid for by Shell, then got hired at the plant. He worked there two and a half years and left in 2020. Now he runs R&A Catering, a business in Manaka with his fiancée, Anna Emler. Emler grew up here and says the plant has already helped spur new businesses in the area. I think it's bringing some of the communities um, back a little bit of communities that were empty spots and vacant businesses. I think that more businesses are now starting to open. So I, I'm not sure if necessarily I can contribute that to all being Shell, but there's definitely more people that are that are out and about and, and spending. Emler just left her job as a mail carrier to work full-time at the food business, filling orders for ribs, mac and cheese, and collards. Some of their most loyal customers are people who work at Shell. For Reynolds, the prospect of pollution from the plant doesn't really bother him. Before a lot of the jobs went away, the steel mills was booming around here. You know there was a lot of exhaust and smoke going on, so to me it's nothing new. He says he'll reserve judgment on the plant until he sees how it performs when it opens up later this summer. Reed Frazier, State Impact, Pennsylvania. Coming up, why is a new generation of coal miners experiencing a surge in black lung cases? More on that after a break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Many a miner in their cage descent Down in pitch black a new day begins Headlamp, lunchbox, water for the day Wives and children at home kneel and pray Hold us in my soul, aching in my back Only life I know 
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. In the mid-20th century, coal mined in Appalachia powered America's emergence as a global superpower. But today, Appalachia's coal industry is just a shadow of what it was in the 1950s, or even in the early 2000s. Now, there's a global energy boom happening, and coal is part of it. So what does that mean for the industry here? At the time we're recording this episode, coal prices are above $100 a ton for the first time since 2008. But coal companies are having a tough time keeping up with all this demand. To help us understand the issues across the globe that are affecting coal companies here in Appalachia, I sat down with Curtis Tate. He covers energy and the environment for West Virginia Public Broadcasting. So first, let's talk about what's driving up the demand and and the price. Well, it started last year when the economy began to recover from COVID-19. You might remember that during 2020, there was practically no demand for coal and natural gas, and prices were low. Then suddenly, last summer, demand shot up for both coal and natural gas. As the price of natural gas increased, coal became the cheaper fuel. Then its price rose to levels not seen in years. Now you have Russia waging war against Ukraine for the last few months. That's encouraging exports of U.S. coal and natural gas to Europe. So the NATO alliance doesn't have to depend on Russia for its energy needs. Coming after years of a down market, like the industry's scaled down mm-hmm. its coal production. And so it seems like it's having a hard time revving back up. Can you tell us a little more about that? Right. Well, most coal is delivered to power plants and export terminals by rail, and that's become a big bottleneck. Railroads trim their workforce because of COVID. Now, like other businesses, they're having a hard time finding enough workers, so there aren't enough trains to move the coal and not enough people to run them. And I understand that this past winter, coal production was so low that here in West Virginia, some power plants weren't running for a while. Well, ordinarily, it's normal for power plants to be idled for weeks or months at a time for regular maintenance. But uh, last year was a little bit unusual. Appalachian Power, for example, has three coal plants in West Virginia. They generate electricity for West Virginia, Kentucky, and Virginia. The coal supply was so tight late last year that Appalachian Power had to idle these plants for longer than expected. Otherwise, they were going to run out of coal by winter, which is the peak season for demand. And because Appalachian Power couldn't get the coal it needed, it had to purchase power from the PJM Interconnection, which is the grid operator for electricity across 13 states, including West Virginia. That purchase power costs more. And so Appalachian Power has gone to the Public Service Commission in West Virginia and asked for a $297 million rate increase to cover the additional costs of of coal, natural gas, and purchase power. It's a big bump, and a lot of people are not happy about it. So what else are companies doing to increase coal production and try to staff back up? Well, it's been tough to ramp up production. Just like the railroads, the coal producers are having a hard time finding workers. And they also haven't invested in production infrastructure in years. 2021 was the first time production increased, not decreased, since 2015. Railroads haven't ordered any new coal cars since 2015, and coal companies complain they can't get financing because banks have net zero and ESG goals. Environmental social governance, it's, it's kind of like a uh, broad sort of catch-all for sustainability, for environmentally friendly, for a reduced carbon footprint. But that argument only goes so far. Plenty of financial institutions still do business with fossil fuels. With prices so high, I think you have a situation where they're kind of satisfied with where they are, with the level of investment that they have. They're making good money. West Virginia is still more coal reliant, even than a lot of other states here in Appalachia. Virginia, for example, is committed to phase out coal by 2050. And even in other states that aren't necessarily putting such a deadline on coal, they're still transitioning toward natural gas and renewables. What is coal's long-term future? Does this does this bump in demand and price make a difference as to what happens 20 or 30 years from now? No, Mason, I really don't think it does. Right now, we're in a period of high prices and high demand, but that may not last long. You have two surrounding states that historically have uh, 
uh, a tradition of coal mining, Pennsylvania and Virginia, they're both moving away from fossil fuels. Both of them have joined the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. And Virginia additionally has the Clean Economy Act. That, that is surely going to, to transition Virginia away from fossil fuel power generation. Now, even West Virginia, as coal-heavy as it still is, has begun to embrace solar. There's a big project that they announced a few months ago in Boone and Lincoln counties. That's the heart of West Virginia's southern coal field. But look, that transition isn't going to happen overnight. Coal will continue to be mined in West Virginia and Appalachia at least this decade. But the cost of renewables isn't driven by whether the economy is up or down or whether there's a war somewhere in the world. Utilities are already planning to take a lot of coal plants offline in the next 10 or 15 years. It may happen faster than we thought. Curtis, thanks for speaking with us on Inside Appalachia and giving us the lowdown on coal. Thanks. It's my pleasure. That was Curtis Tate, who covers energy for West Virginia Public Broadcasting. This latest bump in global demand for coal is the first since the industry's last peak, around 2012. And since then, the coal industry in Appalachia has changed dramatically. Coal companies have gone bankrupt and closed, leaving behind damage to the environment and, at least in one case, workers who went unpaid for their final weeks of work. Miners across the region have had to change careers to find more stable jobs. Others are living with the harmful effects that coal has had on their lungs. Katie Myers reports. Jerry Coleman is sitting at the Cabin Creek Health Clinic in West Virginia. Most of the people look at you and they think that you're healthy. Coleman has black lung, a disease caused by long-term exposure to coal and rock dust in the mines. The soft-spoken 69-year-old worked underground for 37 years. When you start getting black lung, you will notice that you can't keep up with the people. Your body just won't let you do it. When he worked in the mines, Coleman was frustrated by the lack of safety standards. He says companies would be on their best behavior when an inspector came around. Once he leaves, you know, production is, is number one. You know, the men doesn't have a lot of choice. He knew the fine silica dust he breathed every day had something to do with his condition, but he couldn't prove it. Until now. We have a sort of epidemiologic evidence from the where the... Uh, the center of the disease has, you know, resurgent diseases located in central Appalachia, which is where we see these high silica dust levels. That's Dr. Robert Cohen, a pulmonologist at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He recently came out with an analysis showing a direct link between silica and black lung. Federal agencies are in disagreement over how much silica dust workers can be exposed to on the job. It's currently legal for miners to be exposed to twice as much silica dust as workers in any other industry. But federal mine safety officials are currently reviewing the standards. Here's Cohen again. Clearly, I think we have enough evidence to control this. Central Appalachia is a hub for black lung cases, especially as the mining process has become more mechanized and companies have to blow through more rock to get to coal seams. Brandon Crum is a radiologist at the Pikeville United Medical Clinic in eastern Kentucky. He's been researching a surge in black lung cases in recent years. I've seen more complicated in the last 18 months than I've seen in my entire career reading black lung x-rays. He says younger and younger miners are coming into his clinic and their families will deal with the fallout for decades to come. Somebody's going to have to take care of them for the next 20 or 30 years and it's going to be a huge burden. Wes Addington runs the Black Lung Legal Clinic at the Appalachian Citizens Law Center in Whitesburg, Kentucky. He says even if the federal government updates silica dust standards, it won't completely fix the problem. Just because they develop a rule doesn't mean it's going to be sufficient enough to protect future generations of miners from sort of this same fate. If the rule's going to work, Addington says officials need to look for better ways to monitor silica all the time, not just during inspections. The risk of immediate, you know, mining deaths in, in coal mines has vastly improved from where it was 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. But the long-term exposure to deadly dust has, you know, essentially been a failure. Like many in Appalachia, Jerry Coleman saw the mines as the best way to provide for his family. If you wanted to make a good living, a decent living, the coal mines was the place to work. But now he has trouble enjoying the life Cole bought him. He can't walk up his mountain anymore or hunt. He says sometimes if he plays with his grandkids too long, he loses his breath and he can't get it back. Yeah, I made a good living, but I'm paying for it now. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Katie Myers. 
That was reporter Katie Myers, with help from producer Roxy Todd. Just a few days after Katie's story first aired in early June, the U.S. Mine Safety and Health Administration announced it was taking steps. It's making a new silica exposure rule that says will be an improvement for miners. And in the meantime, the agency pledged to increase inspections, especially at mines with repeat offenses. Barbara Ellen Smith wrote one of the definitive books on black lung. She drew on her experience as an activist in the 70s and paired that with new research and interviews to write the 1987 book, Digging Our Own Graves, Coal Miners and the Struggle Over Black Lung Disease. The book was then updated and republished in 2020. I recently spoke with Smith about the past, present, and future of black lung disease. Barbara, we've all just lived through two years of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we've heard how the virus first emerged in Wuhan, China. How did black lung first emerge? Black lung has probably been with us ever since the inception of coal mining. The trick, though, has been to gain official scientific medical recognition of the disease and prevention of the disease in the workplace and compensation for those who've already been afflicted and disabled with it. There are records that date back to the 19th century in the anthracite district uh, where physicians are observing the diminishing breathing capacity of their coal miner patients and are writing quite openly about uh, the problem of a work-related lung disease among coal miners. That attention from the medical profession tends to wane in the late 19th and early 20th century. That seems to be related in part to the rise of certain assumptions about how disease should be diagnosed, and specifically the importance of silica as the primary occupational lung disease that's recognized. Black lung does not follow silicosis exactly in its patterns on an x-ray. So physicians tended to dismiss the idea that there was any disabling lung disease among coal miners. Probably the dominant reason was the fact that healthcare delivery in the coal fields was increasingly dominated by a company doctor system where physicians were hired by the company, but miners were required as a condition of employment to pay for medical services from that doctor. So The physicians in the coal fields were really more accountable to their coal company employers than they were to coal miners or their families. When the United Mine Workers of America had thoroughly unionized uh, the coal fields in the 1930s, one of the chief demands of the union was a health care system that was paid for by the coal mine owners but controlled by the union. And that resulted in an influx of physicians uh, who were quite interested in pursuing work-related issues for coal miners. Uh, And from those physicians, you begin to see in the 1950s the development of some literature in scientific medical journals regarding this lung disease among coal miners. Now, I understand that not only did the coal companies not take black lung as a priority, But initially, the union didn't either. Can you tell us about that? Well, the union um, under John L. Lewis was a pretty authoritarian organization. Lewis, of course, is a a great hero to most coal miners. um, And uh, he did play an outsized role, not only in organizing the coal fields, but in um, the entire American labor movement. However, the union especially, once the Welfare and Retirement Fund was established, found itself in sort of a contradictory position where the revenues that came into the fund derived from a tonnage royalty assessed on coal that was mined. And so the more coal mined, the more revenue that went into the fund, the less coal mined, which would be the effect of extensive prevention measures would compromise the fund. There was also the belief among some historians that uh, Lewis made a deliberate calculation, and there's, there's evidence of this actually in his own writing, to promote mechanization of the mines uh, in the period after World War II, which created extremely dusty working conditions. But he believed that the trade-off would eventually result in better paid, better working conditions, Uh, institutional security for the union. And so he was not prepared to compromise production and productivity in order to institute 
adequate dust control. How did the federal Black Lung Trust Fund develop? Well, the trust fund was established through legislation that was uh, signed into law in 1978. Miners and their survivors were originally paid with funds out of the U.S. Treasury. But the idea that taxpayers across the United States should be paying for the occupational lung disease of workers in a single industry did not sit well. So there had been pressure from the start to create a situation in which the coal industry would be more responsible for the cost of black lung compensation. And the trust fund was an effort to do that by assessing an excise tax on uh, both surface mine and underground mine coal. However, even from the beginning, the amount of revenue that the excise tax brought in was not sufficient to pay all of the benefits. Uh, so the, the trust fund has been in the hole and in debt to the U.S. Treasury ever since its beginning. Now, the coal industry's downturn has not helped the Black Lung Trust Fund. A study found that bankrupt coal companies shed more than $5 billion, that's billion with a B, in environmental and retiree liabilities between 2012 and 2017. So, Barbara... What did that do to the Black Lung Trust Fund? The bankruptcies have been devastating uh, for the trust fund because uh, what happens with Black Lung claims is that a quote-unquote responsible operator is uh, identified to pay directly the Black Lung compensation claim of coal miners or survivors uh, when such an operator can be found. But it's when a coal company goes bankrupt, uh, then not only do they no longer pay into the trust fund, but the claims of miners who worked for that company also are borne uh, by the trust fund. So it's a double whammy. Now, people criticize the union for its initial response to black lung. But in digging our own graves, you argue that the decline of the union as a force for miners has also had its effects on black lung benefits. Can you elaborate on that? The decline of the union, or perhaps more accurately and more pointedly, the intentional destruction of the union by coal mine owners beginning in the 1980s, has left miners, especially in central Appalachia, without the protection of a union contract and without the protection of a collective organization that can back them up if they want to and attempt to um, insist on adequate dust control measures on the job. That's really where the union, I think, um, and its decline has been so significant. I've talked with many, many miners who speak about conditions in the workplace that are clearly related to the lack of union protection, perhaps most um, evident in the mandatory overtime that miners are working. Miners also talk about the fact that uh, it takes time to check your water sprays and maintain them on the equipment in order to suppress dust. It takes time to hang curtain and to do other things that control the flow of air. Measures that were routinely done in a union mine with a strong health and safety committee are now routinely ignored for the sake of production and productivity. And in the absence of a union contract, it's really extremely difficult, indeed hazardous, for one's job security uh, to protest those conditions. So what does all this mean for miners? Miners will be paid if they can win their claim. The source of that payment uh, is sometimes the coal company itself for which they worked, as I, as I mentioned, the so-called responsible operator, or it will be the Black Lung Trust Fund. I've been reading a lot of stories lately about how the trust fund is in jeopardy again. Like miners can still get paid benefits, but the, the tax rate's been reduced that coal companies actually pay into it. And I know that miners and other groups have been pressuring Congress to do something about it. But in the meantime, my understanding is that miners are still going to work, even if they have black lung, as long as there's jobs to have. Miners work uh, until they absolutely um, just cannot, even with assistance from co-workers, manage to uh, last a full shift. Uh, we've seen that over and over again. Gary Hairston, who's the president of the National Black Lung Association, talks about trying to go back to work even after being diagnosed with the most advanced form of black lung because he wanted to provide for his family. And that's typically, of course, the reason. You know, we're looking at a situation of high unemployment, 
a lot of job insecurity, so you got to work. It's the best paid job around uh, as long as you can. Black lung benefits don't begin to compare with a paycheck from working in the mines. That was Barbara Allen Smith, author of the book Digging Our Own Graves, Coal Miners and the Struggle Over Black Lung Disease. Families are still having a hard time finding baby formula. The COVID-19 pandemic's effects on supply chains and a recall from one of the country's largest manufacturers has caused a nationwide shortage. John Saldana is a professor of supply chain management at West Virginia University. Shepard Snyder spoke with him about how the shortage happened, how it could have been prevented, and what it means for West Virginians. Starting off, I was wondering if you could give some background on why we're kind of in the middle of a baby formula shortage. Uh, How did this happen? Uh, When did this start? So there's something called stockouts, which is a measure of how many times a retailer places an order with a distributor or a manufacturer and does not get that order filled. The retailers usually expect between a 5 to 7% stockout pre-pandemic. Once the pandemic hit and you started seeing transportation slowdowns, labor shortages because of the lockdowns and because of sicknesses and the cut in manufacturing, you started seeing that figure climb up to about just around 10%, which is usually a red flag for uh, baby formula because it's so specialized. Starting January, there was a climb beyond 10%, and by February, March, it was already 20%, and late April, May, it was close to 40%. Tracing back the events that led to this was the voluntary recall of the uh, Similac uh, formula that is produced by Abbott in Sturgis, Michigan. So uh, that plant alone accounts for a fifth of the total baby formula that is distributed in the United States. So that's a big chunk of what is produced for the entire U.S. market. And I was wondering if you'd go a little bit into how the outbreak of COVID-19 kind of worsened the shortage. So the lockdowns essentially meant that everybody just stayed at home. And of course, if there was any suspicion that anybody in a facility was sick and you saw the lockdowns even impact the meat supply chains, there was meat shortages. And, you know, going down the, the list of commodities and products that you saw in the grocery store, and on the demand side, you also have hoarding and you have pantry loading. So people fear that we're going to lose supplies about on something. And then you you, you go out and you, you buy as much of that product that you can. And retailers, before they realize it, they start stocking out. They start seeing that they cannot order enough because production has a capacity that is usually efficiently optimized to make sure that especially for commodity type products, which is, uh, you know, your everyday staples, they usually have pretty steady demand throughout. You're not going to see, you know, health, beauty care, like deodorant, soaps, toilet paper, see them spike at any time of the year unless there's manufacturer promotion. So when you have this sudden shock to the system on the demand side, that also affects, there's something called a bullwhip effect that affects the, the, the signal that gets sent up the supply chain to the manufacturer and then to the suppliers that affects the the availability of product and the availability of raw materials. So you had this crunch on both sides that that affected the supply chains for the, into the pandemic. Were there any other kind of supply chain issues that we're seeing that are kind of affecting this baby formula shortage currently? If you think about the market as a whole, the market as a whole, as I described for baby formula is an oligopoly or resembles an oligopoly. You have Reckitt and Binkissa and you have Abbott that control close to 80% of the market share. Baby formula is almost like a medicine. It's treated like medicine and FDA is the one that has to regulate it significantly. On the supply side, you have this very, very regulated, protected market where you have a few large players and the biggest purchaser of baby formula is women, infants and children, the, the WIC program, which is administered by the federal government. So the states provide a retailer. So if anybody goes into a store and buys WIC, then the state will reimburse them with those federal dollars that they're given. Now, it is actually beneficial for states and this hospital systems also do this, where they can contract with one manufacturer because now they can leverage those quantity discounts and they can get the, the formula at a much lower price. So you've if you see the states around the United States, you can actually see each state is actually divided and, and has a sole source 
of one manufacturer. So there will be more states that there will be some states that are more affected because they are directly contracted with, uh, with Abbott. And as a result of that, you have this large protected government funded industry. And of course, because of the because of the significant barriers to entry, you don't have many more producers entering the market and adding more competition. I was also wondering how some of these supply chain issues can be at least in your eyes, fixed or even prevented? First and foremost, as a private company, I would say we, you know, leaders of these companies, of all companies who, who, who look at their market, look at their customers and look at their consumers and say, where can our customers and where can our consumers suffer the most because of a lack of our product? Then going back and mapping their supply chain and seeing where are the vulnerabilities in their supply chain and seeing we have a sole source contract with this supplier in this region of the world. And these are the political effects, the geographical effects, the climate and economic effects that can affect them and affect the supply of that critical component or raw material. And we have to be able to do something about this. Now, if it's critical enough, like a baby formula or pharmaceutical or some other shortage that is going to affect the population at large, then we need to go in and talk to you know whoever the government regulators or have a discussion with our representatives in Congress to be able to say this is something important and put it on the radar or in the public policy realm. Are there any kind of unique issues West Virginians might face with regards to this baby formula shortage? We have the same problem that everybody else has, and that is who is our primary is who's our primary supplier? Is it uh, Similac or is it Enfamil? In the short term, we're obviously going to see a greater impact in West Virginia, and that's something that everybody else is facing. That was John Saldana, WVU Professor of Supply Chain Management, speaking with Shepard Snyder about the shortage of baby formula. Some communities in the region have had inconsistent access to water, but for people who live on mountains, getting water is even more difficult. Now, some residents in Wyoming County, West Virginia, are finding relief thanks to new water lines. Jessica Lilly recently visited a project on top of a mountain. She brings us this report. It's about a 30-minute drive from the main road in Bud to the top of Bud Mountain. Many residents used to have a community well until it ran too dirty to use, they say. And even after the local public service district ran main water lines, most of the residents couldn't afford the personal hookup costs. Until now, thanks to a nonprofit called Dig Deep. Dig Deep's Appalachian Water Project manager, Bob McKinney, is managing the new water installation projects at the top of the mountain. It's a haul to get to the construction site. Even McKinney has to call in for directions. If you come up right there at Bob's Branch and then you get to the top of Bob's Branch and hang a left, just ride out left, you'll come out to the church. Okay, I'll... uh, I'll On the way up, houses are spread out, so it's hard to believe that there's more than 100 homes that need water hookups. uh, I mean, you're telling me there's 122 homes up here? Uh, uh, Not just in this area, but on down into um, Herndon Heights. Uh, This is, let's see, this is Herndon Heights. I get them backwards in Beartown. Beartown and Herndon Heights are two communities on this mountain. McKinney hired a team of contractors to install new, high-pressure water lines from the main line to the home. The project to bring reliable tap water to residents began with a survey to find out which homes can access the new PSD water lines. They got the main lines run. Uh, Well, they're still running them, as a matter of fact in some places, and uh, what we did, we've come up and done surveys of the places that have had them run, and we'll come up and do an interview of the homeowner to see if they want us to help, and uh, if they do, then we'll schedule to come up and start running lines. Now, we're running lines right now. That's when water and sanitation technician Bucky Osborne and his crew come in. What we're doing right now, we're putting in water line. The water lines are high pressure and will carry 250 PSI, faster service than the current black plastic lines. Osborne walks behind one of the houses where two other men are working. We're digging the trenches to get it ready to run the service line to them. And we're running them up to the house until the PSD comes in and does what they need to do and then we'll come back and hook it up. On this day, the crew is behind a home. The space where they're working is narrow. In places where the backhoe won't fit, 
Workers have to dig with shovels by hand. They're putting in new line because the old line, I guess they just had so many problems with the old line, so they're coming in putting new service in. The homeowner, Danny Bird, has lived in the house for about 17 years. When I first moved up here, they had a well, a community well, but the water was nasty and it red. It wasn't good for much but showering and flushing the toilet, you know. So it's pretty rough way to bring our own drinking water up here for several years. Bird explains that the community would collect water at the bottom of the mountain. And where was the source? Where would you collect? Down at Herndon, uh, at the bottom of Jug Holler. Do you know where the water outlet is down there? It's like right on the side of the road. Yeah, in the hose. Yeah, that's where about all of us got our water from. Bird is semi-retired. A back injury has kept him out of work for a few years now. He admits that the cost to connect to the main line would have been a tough expense. He gladly accepted the help from Dig Deep. Well, so far, it hadn't been any expense at all. You know, they've provided everything, even installing it to the house. I asked him, you know, what charge was going to be. He said, none. Yippee. <laughs> was that kind of surprising? Like, hey, what's the catch? Why, absolutely. You know, I said, golly, putting it in for free? Sounds good to me. I'll take it. Dig Deep's Bob McKinney says the crews plan to run lines to 33 more homes in communities like Herndon Heights and Beartown on Bud Mountain. They expect to be finished connecting more than 120 homes total by the end of July. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jessica Lilly on Bud Mountain. West Virginia native Dave Evans enlisted in the Marine Corps when he was only 17. A year later, his unit was ambushed in Vietnam. Most of the men were killed. Evan survived, but lost both legs. He returned to the U.S., where he was fitted with prosthetics. Evans went to school, joined the national anti-war effort, and became a peace activist. He later divided his time between West Virginia and a long list of war-torn countries, where he traveled to help fit prosthetic limbs to civilian survivors, many of them children. Evans died in 2020 at the age of 68. Filmmakers Allison Gilkey... Eric Newdell featured Evans in a documentary film, The Wake Up Call. Bill Lynch spoke with Gilkey and Newdell about the film. Tell me about this film that you've made. We had this idea to do a film about war. It started out in Laos when we were in there on a trip for the State Department as part of the American Film Showcase. They were showing a, a film that we had made. We went up to northern Laos to the border with uh, Vietnam and China in this area called the Plain of Jars. What we discovered there was that it was highly bombed. There were lots of unexploded bombs there. We filmed, we had our equipment, we filmed a lot of the kids and people. Anyhow, we got great material, beautiful material about these people who've been damaged by this American bombing. That area is the most bombed area in the planet in Laos. It was a neutral country, but it was a good dumping zone. That's kind of the point of um, how awful this bombing was because it was the American warplanes that couldn't land at the airbase um, with loaded with ordnance. So they just indiscriminately dumped whatever munitions they had left over the mountains of northern Laos. So a lot of the people who were injured were farmers and their children. Well, we got back home with, you know, hours and hours and hours of footage and we were super excited to, you know, explore this idea further. And as we were going through the footage, of course, the light bulb went on. Oh my goodness, we're essentially looking at a foreign language film here. We couldn't afford a translator. So we then started thinking about, okay, this is a really important subject area. How are we going to tell something about war and who can we find to be the main character? Turns out that decades ago, Eric had worked with this man, Dave Evans, who is the main character in the film, shooting Dave as he was working in prosthetics clinics. Nothing came of that project, but we were able to contact Dave at his home in Antigua, Guatemala, and he graciously agreed to allow us to come and stay with him for a couple of weeks. It might be nice if you guys could tell me a little about Dave, his personality, and what he was like. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was uh, an amazing character, uh, irascible sometimes, uh, really sure. difficult sometimes, mm -hmm. super great buddy. Talk with him. He had this vast amount of experience in the world, and his story was amazing. You know, you got the feeling with him that he was a person possessed. 
he himself needed repair. And I think the way he thought he could repair himself was repairing other people. So he was really passionate about that and really obsessed with doing his best. Dave passed away in 2020. Did that have any effect on, I guess, the making of the documentary? Did it change any directions or, or thoughts that you were, had planned? No, in fact, the film was finished. You know, its structure, everything was in place by the by the time Dave passed. When he died on on July third, uh, Allison called me and said, "You know, I have some really really bad news for you." And when she told me that, uh, the first thought I had is, "He never got to see this. He never. This film had finally." totally gelled and was resonating. I was so anxious. Uh, we were both so anxious for him to see it that it kind of like broke my heart that he didn't, he didn't, this is his legacy, I think. And a part of it. A part of it. Mm. And I mean, he's got a lot of people he trained, a lot of people he's helped. Mm. Uh, so th that's a, of course, a bigger uh, legacy than what we did. But in terms of expressing his spirit, I think this is a, a good vehicle for getting across who he is and was and what he meant. What do you hope people will take away from the film? I hope it makes people think. As Dave himself says in the film, I wish, I wish people would just think think a little. We send these young kids off and they are kids. Dave was only 17. He wasn't even old enough to sign his own enlistment papers. He had to ask his mum to do it. What do we think is going to happen to these tender, young hearts and minds when they see inevitably what they're going to see in war? We bring them home. They're not the same people. So... Think, just listen to the wisdom in the film. This wisdom comes from people who have lived that experience. The other side for me is, uh, the second part for me is that Dave, you know, as we, as I said earlier, he was repairing himself by repairing other people. I think one of the lessons is that if you really want to do something, if you want to be happy, if you want to repair yourself, do something for other people. And it will yield a kind of uh, redemption for you. It may not be, as in Dave's case, it may, Vietnam always haunted him, but it filled him and it, it made him a better person. He, he was not someone who just gave like five bucks to a cause and that's it, you're done. He went actively, uh, existentially into that world and he made it better for real human beings in very tangible ways. The film is called The Wake Up Call, Eric Allison. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Thank Bill. Thank you. Appreciate it. The Wake Up Call was recently shown in Charleston as part of Festival. The filmmakers are currently pursuing distribution deals to get the documentary more widely shown. Have a question, comment, or story idea? Write to us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Or find us at West Virginia Public Broadcasting on Facebook or at wvpublic on Instagram. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Long Point String Band, Spencer Elliott, Barnstorman, Dog and Gun, and Rich and the Poe Boys. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.